Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm a president and Old Testament professor here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testaments and uh, dean of academics here. I'm also joined by our professor of systematic theology, Grace Sutanto, our professor of Old Testament, my colleague in the Old Testament department here, Dr. Peter Lee, who's also our dean of students, and Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church up here in the Northern Virginia area. It's great to be with you all, and we're continuing on in our series dealing with the Apostles' Creed, and we're getting near the end. We only have two or three, depending, depends on how we divide this up. We only have about two or three episodes left, and today we're going to be talking about the second to last of the of the articles of the Apostles' Creed, and that is the article saying the resurrection of the body. In other words, continuing this clause that begins with, I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, and finally, the resurrection of the body. And this is a natural this is a natural second clause, second phrase, right? To come after this idea of the forgiveness of sins, where forgiveness of sins is highlighting uh, what, what we have gained by losing the guilt and the corruption and all those things we talked about last week of sin. Now we turn towards the hope, the future hope that we have gained. And also in a way in Pauline theology, not just a future hope, but a present hope. All right, it's a present gift, a present benefit that we have, the resurrection of the body, the new man living within us, Christ living within us. And so I want to open the floor and let's talk a little bit about why resurrection of the body would get its own mention here in the Apostles' Creed. There's a lot of things that they can say about salvation, and they choose to say the forgiveness of sins followed by the resurrection of the body. So, so let, me, let me offer that to you all. Why have this extra article dealing with the resurrection of the body? Well, I got to confess, Scott, this is one of my favorite phrases. It's uh, in the uh, in, in the Apostles' Creed. And I think one of the reasons it's become one of my favorite phrases is because for so long of my both theological and academic theological life, I never noticed how profound it was. It, it really is saying something new and encapsulates a whole host of Christian doctrine in one little phrase. I think the reason why I didn't notice it or think much of it until more uh, until more recently is because I've always read it in a way that I think a lot of Christians read it, which is just the resurrection of the dead, that there will be a resurrection. Uh, and that's certainly true, but when the confession says resurrection of the body, it has a very specific kind of resurrection in mind, bodily resurrection, that we are not angels in heaven, we're not spirits in heaven, but that at some point we will be raised spiritual bodies, physical stuff. Uh, how that works, you know, there's there's a lot of mystery, but the, the idea that we will have a, a raised bodily, glorified bodily form is an amazing idea and in many respects uniquely christian right it's not one that you hear about or i should i should speak autobiographically i mean i don't feel like i heard about this a lot growing up now 
it's, it's true that there's a lot of things when you kind of get serious about your faith, you think, well, I know he taught me this when I was growing up. And then you go back maybe and you realize, no, people taught it. I just didn't hear it. So that's always possible. But I felt like growing up, I didn't hear a lot about the bodily aspect of our salvation. For, for me, it was a, it was, it was sort of, you live in heaven forever, right? And that's where we are as spirits. And that's where we want to be. And this idea that God has dignified creation, not merely in the creation of it, but in the commitment to restoring it and renewing it. And that includes our bodies. You know, the idea that having a body is not an effect of the of sin and the fall, but having a body is actually a part of God's good creation that he calls very good and, and never rescinds that judgment, right? He never pulls it back after the fall says, now it's not good or something like that. We're, we're still longing for creation to reach its fullness and that that includes the resurrection of the body, the renewal of the whole of God's people. And, and, and that's something that really strikes me here. It's not just a, spir- a change in spiritual status, but there's actually a change in physical status that's involved in the salvation that Christ has won. Yeah, and I, I would think I was actively taught, you know, again, not by my church, but just at a younger age, just people around me, you know, they would say heaven is this disembodied, you, you become an angel etc. Um, and tied to that, as a pastor, I would often get asked by our middle schoolers uh, and sometimes our high schoolers, like, will some version of the question of like, will heaven be boring? Because our vision of heaven is this otherworldly, disembodied, all, all you do is sort of sing. It's just the spiritual experience. And uh, there's two things there, obviously, one spiritual experiences are not boring. Um, and so there's a corrective that we can offer uh, to, to, in that regard. But also when we're reminded by Jesus himself that the resurrection is bodily, uh, Jesus ate fish before his disciples with his glorified body. And why did he eat fish? I, I'm convinced that it's because he liked fish and that he enjoyed the feasting with his disciples that he had in his you know, human, you know, when he was, when he was a, a mere man, uh, a human being, a, you know, a non-glorified body. And then he experiences that in a new and more perfect way with his glorified body. And so it's a reminder that some of the, the, the joys that we, the bodily joys that we experience now are going to be, you know, have a glorified corollary in the heavenly realm. Yeah. I think this is, what we may refer to as three guardrails against Gnosticism or this Neoplatonic view of matter as inherently bad or inherently less than that which is spiritual, right? The three guardrails are, one, the doctrine of creation, that God had created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. God had called it good. God was satisfied with it. God was pleased with it. The second guardrail is the incarnation. Jesus Christ, who is son of God, very God of very God, took on a human body and was pleased to dwell in human form. And then this is the third guardrail that we're talking about here, that he not only died, he was resurrected and he was resurrected in a new glorified spiritual body that reaffirms the goodness of his natural body, but also perfects it, consummates it. And hence the resurrection shows God's dedication to the renewal of his good physical creation and that God is only against sin and not against nature as such, as we have always mentioned. Amen. You know, I've heard people talk about the fact, well, it can't, it can't be a physical reality like our reality today. Of course, now we're talking about analogy. So there's a lot that's allowed for an analogy. 
you know, and, I, and I've heard some folks go back to, you know, like first Corinthians chapter two, where it talks about the glory that God has prepared for us and citing Isaiah, Paul says, you know, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him, you know, and the idea being that, well, it's, so it's not going to be like this. It's going to be like something else. Right. And yet at the same time, I, I, you know, I think we have to go back and say, well, to the point about creation being good, even being very, you know, tov ma'od, very good, the language that's used there to talk about humanity. I think the thing that we can't conceive of, and to be honest, I can't conceive of it, is what will it be like to glorify Christ in this sort of unmediated sense of the new heavens and new earth, where there doesn't, where there's no temple because the whole world is temple, and there's no sun because the glory of God fills the earth, right? You know, in the symbolic language of, of, of the apocalypse, or the idea of worshiping God without sin or a sense of, or a sense or even experience of decay and death. You know, I can't conceive of that. It, 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 if I think about it too long, it draws it draws me to tears because it's like how how do you how do you conceive of having the burden of this life and of death that's still on us removed? It's a, it's a, yeah. it's that's impossible to conceive of. And yet at the same time, I don't think we have to say therefore it's some kind of spiritual non bodily abstract, you know, abstraction or something mm-hmm. like that. God calls this world good. It might be the reality of sin or the reality of death today that makes us have a hard time believing that, but we shouldn't. God, God says this creation's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And I too feel that problem or that tension of, I can't imagine a cosmos that functions that way because our current cosmos requires right decay, death at some level is built into the way the world currently works. You, you have to have leaves decaying in order to have fertile soil for more plants to grow. So what does an order of creation look like where you move from life to further life without death? I mean, we'll get to that <laughs> next week, right? With the everlasting life. What it's, a, it's not just an extended life. It is a different order of life. And that is a beautiful thing to think about and then your head butts up against all the mysteries involved. What what does God have planned for us? It is greater and more perfect than anything we can possibly imagine. You know, brothers, one of the most uh, powerful testimonies I ever heard regarding you know the resurrection of the body came from this uh, young man who was struggling with his sexuality and so forth, and. Um, he said when he came across this, I guess, idea in 1 Corinthians 15, it opened up this idea that sin hasn't just corrupted my soul or my being, but that it's possible sin has corrupted uh, me in, in, in its entirety, you know? And uh, he shared that it was actually the first time he began to think of at least the possibility that his body has also been affected. You know, I know this is a very uh, touchy topic and that it can be redeemed, you know, and he said it was just an eye-opening experience for him because he had always thought, okay, you know, cancer is a result of the fall or, you know, like my uh, sinful tendencies in terms of anger or greed are a result of the fall. But he he shared that after thinking through this, um, redemption of the body means that in a very holistic way, you know, I'm fallen, 
and therefore it just opened up categories for him. I mean, it was just it, I just remember this very pointed conversation. I thought that was worth sharing. I so appreciate everything that we're talking about here in terms of the kind of the imp incomparable glory that awaits us at the uh, on the resurrection. And you know, and and I and I've often thought how the way that scripture oftentimes portrays the the new heavens and new earth and the eternal kingdom is in, you know, Scott, as you mentioned, is in apocalyptic visions. It's it's not it's it's visions. You know, they're not concrete. They're meant to be more just these grand uh, redemptive pictures. I think of like Romans eight, where he talks about the current sufferings we go through is incomparable to the glory that awaits. It might be part of the reason why we have a hard time articulating what exactly is awaiting for us. But, you know, the fact that we can't quite explain it doesn't in any way neutralize the significance of it or the benefit or the grandeur uh, of, of, uh, of what that awaits us. And I think that's, this is really why I love biblical theology. It pushes us to constantly look towards that, that day of resurrection and consummation and and, and always uh, uh, pressing us in our reading of scripture to look to that day of, of, of that kind of final resolution to everything and uh, where our ultimate hope, you know, is, is in. And, and, and you know, I, I find that so gratifying and satisfying, uh, not just theologically and academically, but just, uh, you know, just as a, as a Christian. Uh, to read scripture in that way, which is why, you know, I, I love the doctrine of the resurrection. I, uh, I love how uh, Voss in, in our biblical theological tradition uh, almost makes it a hermeneutic, not just a historical event. It's a way that we look at scripture. It's a way that we look at the Christian life. It's a resurrection lifestyle, uh, as well as a way that we, it's an event that uh, forms how we look at life as well as how we understand the history of salvation and in the entirety of scripture. It's fantastic. Yeah. And, and, and how we trace that forward into the, the last, we're in the last days, but how we trace that forward to the last day, because, you know, Peter, I really like how you mentioned like the language that we get often the language that we get about uh, the new heavens and the new earth and our glorified spiritual bodies. A lot of it is metaphorical and character and it's difficult to be, precise you know sometimes in our in our own context we want to get to the details at the atomic level how, how does this this kind of physicality work and i think those are really interesting kinds of questions and there's some speculative you know philosophy being done by christians in in those kinds of areas i think they're it's always really fascinating but when we go back to scripture we find you know types and images that require us to think creatively and engage our imaginations and also be careful about you know, the actual propositions that we affirm. But in, in all of that, we do have one very clear non-metaphorical picture of what bodily resurrection looks like, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can look at, we don't get a lot, we don't we get a couple paragraphs here and there, but, but they're really informative and they're really helpful. And I love, one of the things I love about those vignettes that we get in the Gospels is just the giddy joy that Jesus has being reunited with friends and the way he celebrates that in the kind of ordinary ways that we celebrate that getting, I mean, I'm so excited that we're kind of coming out of this, this COVID period or hopefully prayerfully coming out of this COVID period and we can feast together. We can eat together. We can rejoice together and be present together. And those are the kinds of things that you see Jesus doing 
after the resurrection, he in his glorified body has more control than he has ever had before. And he uses that, he uses his power to feast with his friends and to call them to, to, to communion. And it's a, it's a glorious picture of reunion, I think. Amen. In fact, I, I really wish, Tommy, that someone would write a book about some of these metaphors and images that, um, uh, that the scriptures use to describe these grand, uh, redemptive, you know, I hope I can say this in a way that our listeners can appreciate it, these eschatological visions of the uh, eternal kingdom. Don't you wish someone would write a book like that, Tommy? I know what you're doing, Peter. I know what you're doing. I wish somebody would publish a book like that. All right, I'll, I'll, it. I'll do it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> you, God, God loves you. God loves you. And Peter has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, well, I, I, I like, you know, I, I used to be a pastor. I, this is exactly what I used to do. Is I had no problem telling people what to do with their lives. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like that. I mean, I like that connection to Christ, Tommy, because uh, that that really is at the end of the day, kind of the logic of the Apostles' Creed, too, right? You have Him dying on the cross. Thereby, I mean, it's it's, it's not merely negative. But those are sort of the negative effects of our salvation. That sin is now forgiven, and then He rises from the dead. And that highlights or draws our attention to now the positive effects of our salvation, right? Our gaining of new life. And it's interesting, you know, I, this is another thing. I've put this in the list of things I wish I had heard more about as a kid, you know, and then realizing it maybe, maybe I did. And I just, <laughs> I just didn't listen to it, but my future resurrection is not like this thing that's just for me to get because Jesus died on the cross. This is me. I receive it because I am in the risen Christ. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and you see this language used throughout Paul, you know, he talks about putting on Jesus. So that's, you know, kind of an ethical call in Romans 13 or putting on the new man, the new human being who was created according to God in righteousness. Uh, you find that in Ephesians four, this kind of this idea of laying hold of our resurrected Lord. And yet at the same time, you know, I'm kind of going backwards, imperative to indicative. You have passages like Galatians 2.20, where he says, I no longer live, right? But now Christ lives within me. And again, all of these are these sort of drawing our attention to the fact that not only will I be raised from the dead, I have been raised from the dead in Christ. And now, in a sense, it's, it's like I'm, uh, you know, it's like while I live in this world, I am, I am breathing the fresh air of the new heavens and new earth because Christ dwells within me through the spirit of the risen Christ. Right. So this is, this is not just future hope. This is something that we have today because Christ Jesus has risen from the dead on our behalf. Yeah. And it, and it's not just a personal hope. It's a cosmic one because, you know, Jesus is not just my Lord. He's the Lord of the, the whole cosmos. And so you see that in Romans eight, just as we will be raised. So it's, it's as if the problem is, when we're raised and given our glorified bodies, the earth will no longer be able to sustain us. It won't be sufficient for that task. It can't bear the weight of the glory that is to come. And so the whole cosmos groans for redemption. Uh, and so we see a new, you know, we will be fit for a new heavens and a new earth. And we wait for that day as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful doctrine that encompasses Christology, anthropology, um, physics. I, it, it's, it's, so, it's so important. 
I, I can't remember if it were uh, it was Voss or Ritter Voss that actually spoke about how creation is groaning for the day of the resurrection of the sons of God, because that creation was never intended to actually be a burial place for our bodies. So creation is functioning in a way that it was never intended to do from the moment of its well, from, from the moment of its inception. And so it also, creation is also longing for resurrection. So it doesn't have to be this sort of barrier. I mean, again, it's just, uh, uh, I think that was a comment he was making there on Romans 8, uh, Tommy, that you were alluding to and why creation is groaning uh, for, the, for the resurrection of, um, uh, uh, of the body. I think another thing that really comes out from Voss and also from reading Richard Gaffin would be the idea that the resurrection is also a vindication for Christians. It's a final vindication for Christians, uh, precisely because Christians are going to be persecuted in this world, misunderstood. We are pilgrims on the way towards the new heavens and the new earth. Our home is not here right now. We long for this final vindication, just as Christ was misunderstood, just as Christ was betrayed, and his resurrection was his vindication. So would our resurrection be our vindication, that Christ really is the risen Lord, that following him is not for nothing that um, the mission and the values that we have lived for on this earth is actually the true ones, despite all the persecutions that the world has thrown against us. This final resurrection is showing in a public declarative way that Christians are in the right. And I think this is a motif that might be missed sometimes when we talk about the resurrection. Yes, it's about entrance towards no more pain, no more hunger, no more sin, but it's also this, this beautiful motif of redemption, of vindication. And I just love a good vindication story and this is the best one yeah you're right this is the greatest vindication story of all time this is this is actually good you go back to the suffering servant songs in isaiah we were just talking about this the other night in one of my classes you know how, how is it that this person who's identified as israel in in isaiah is going to die for the sake of our sins and be vindicated in his death, vindicated in a resurrection. How is that possible? And it's possible because in Christ, who is true Israel for us, he is vindicated in his death and all of those who are in him are vindicated as well. And it's, it's the great cosmic vindication story. And it's a beautiful one of which we all get to partake because of the grace of the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Brothers, it's great discussing this with you. I look forward now to unpacking this further because of course it, it raises the question. So if, if we will be raised in bodies imperishable, if the curse of death and, and sin is lifted from us, then what do we have to expect in this new heavens and new earth? And it's going to take us into this last phrase that is um, the everlasting life. And so we, we look forward to coming back together and talking about it again next week and drawing to an end this series on the Apostles' Creed. Thanks for listening to the Faculty Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., go to www.rts.edu forward slash Washington. If you're enjoying this content, please tell others about it. You can share it on social media. You can write for us a review, and those reviews help more than you know on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to ask a question of the profs uh, for us to address at a future podcast episode, you can go to rts.edu forward slash Washington forward slash podcast, or you can just go to the show notes here and you'll see a link to that where you can actually fill out a little question uh, questionnaire and uh, it'll put your question to us so that we can address it in a future episode. I look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Until then, take care. Thank you.
this is an opportunity for you gaffing guys to really be able to uh, chime in. I All right, there you go. Peter's, Peter's throwing down the gauntlet. Gaffing guys, you better step up. Which means Paul and Tommy. Well, you study with uh, Gaffin, right? With, right I, with, I had him for like phone call from Dick Gaffin after like three years. He calls, and I'm I'm seeing I'm seeing Dick Gaffin on my. Dick Gaffin's calling me. What is? Maybe he's finally taking me up on my offer to help him edit his book. Uh huh. What's Gray's phone number? I hear he's in town. <laughs> uh. I only had him for like a couple of lectures, so I, I don't know what to say. I, I went to his church, so that was great, and I loved his books. But I feel like I can't own my status of the Gaffin guy, uh, like you guys, because you had like full semesters with the guy. Yeah, well, he called me to get information about you, so 